Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Today we're talking politics, power and corruption with Brian Klass. Here's Anne Applebaum with more. Does power corrupt or are corrupt people drawn to power? This is a question that runs through the work of our guest today, Brian Klass. Like me, Brian is an American who spends a lot of time in London, where he is professor of global politics at University College London. He's also a columnist for The Washington Post and, as such, my former colleague and host of the Very Good Power Corrupts podcast. His books include The Despot's Accomplice, How the West is Aiding and Abetting the Decline of Democracy, which was published in 2016, as well as the follow-up to that, The Despot's Apprentice, Donald Trump's Attack on Democracy, published in 2017. Uh, in 2018, he made it a trilogy with How to Rig an Election. Brian is now back with a new book, very ambitious in scope, called Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, published in the U.S. this month from Simon & Schuster. This new book looks at the psychology behind those who grab power from despots and world leaders to leaders of police and philanthropists. Uh, welcome to Intelligence Squared, Brian. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I wanted to start with, rather than the book itself, I wanted to start with your path to this book, because I've been following your work for a long time. Uh, your work on kleptocracy, work on the ways in which people in the West have been tainted by their interactions with autocracies around the world. What got you exactly to this subject? Because this is a little bit different. This is a this is a book that pulls together a lot of strands of psychological research, anthropological research, as well as politics. Yeah. So basically, I mean, I spent most of my career studying bad people doing bad things in politics. Um, <laughs> and, you know, one of the paradoxes that occurred to me was Whenever I talk to people, they always say, you know, my friends are good people. We were generally, you know, above board. We wouldn't steal if we were in positions of power. We wouldn't abuse people and so on. So why does this happen where all of us are surrounded by people who are generally good? And then we look at those in power and we think they're generally bad. And so I started to think in a broader sense, not just in politics, but in business and sports and all forms of leadership around the world, 
why does it seem that we have this mismatch between the generally good people that we seem to be surrounded by and then the constant corruption and scandals and abuse of those in, in power? And I had this podcast, Power Corrupts, which I basically titled because I thought it sounded cool. Uh, but then I started to think, you know, is that actually true, right? Does, is it actually true that power turns people bad or is something else at play? And that's where the, the book's research was born. So I'll get a little bit more into that in a second, but I'm also interested in how you wrote it because there's a huge range of examples and stories here. Is this, are these things collected over your, you know, last several years or were you thinking about this subject specifically for this book? Well, it's been in the back of my mind for basically 10 years. <laughs> I've been thinking about why is it that we have this, these awful people in power so often. Um, but at the same time, one of the things that I did when I started doing the book in earnest in, in 2019 was I started to reach out to people from other disciplines who were studying similar questions, but from totally different angles, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, for the first time in my career, I spoke to a neuroscientist about what it does to your brain to be in power. I spoke to evolutionary biologists about why certain strategies of attaining power might make sense for our survival as a species. Uh, I talked to psychologists about psychopaths. And what, what I started to realize was that there's a whole bunch of people in different disciplinary silos that are thinking about these questions. And political scientists, and also I think journalists, think about them from a very narrow perspective. So I tried to sort of draw in things, including stuff like research on baboons and, and other forms of animals, wasps, which have corruption in their hives, uh, so to speak. These things, I think, all teach us lessons. And then I started thinking about the people who are interested in case studies, which is why I ended up doing some very strange things for the book, like uh, taking a ski lesson with Paul Bremer, the, the former viceroy of Iraq out in Vermont, and meeting with children of dictators and so on. So it, it sort of draws in together some of my previous work in politics with a much more expansive view of what power is and how it changes people. Yes, it was, it's a very creative book. I mean, you, you have a wide definition of what is power and who is powerful. There's one that I want to talk about in a minute, which is a, a kind of a janitor at a school who became, who went mad with power. So it's something that doesn't just happen to dictators of countries. But I actually wanted to start with a story that clearly influenced you because you put it in your introduction, which is the story of the a former prime minister of Madagascar, Ravalo Manana. Forgive me if I pronounced it incorrectly. You did it completely correctly, amazingly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So this is a man who had a very admirable, impressive life story, who began as a, as a small trader and who built up a huge business in his country. He, it was a kind of yogurt empire. So, you know, he wasn't making guns or weapons or anything like that. He was making something people wanted and liked. He did so in a completely legal and honest way um, when he decided that he wanted to have a role in politics. It was to make his country more honest and, and cleaner and make it better for small businessmen and ordinary people like himself. And yet, when he became prime minister, that changed. Um, you, you met him. Can you describe a little bit about him? Because as I said, you use him as a kind of foundational story at the beginning of the book. What about him was intriguing? What conclusions did you draw from meeting him and what happened to him. Yeah, so so President Ravalo Manana was one of these guys who, as you mentioned, he grew up really poor. Uh, he was selling yogurt off the back of his bicycle and he built that into a dairy empire for Madagascar, who became one of the richest men on the island. And then he turned that into political power. And, and what you sort of look at is a, what is basically a linear trajectory of him becoming more corrupt, 
more willing to skirt the rules over his time in office, particularly in his second term, where, where his term ended when he was overthrown by a radio DJ in a coup d'etat in, in 2009. Quite a colorful story. But the thing that's intriguing to me about him is that it shows the complexity of power. I mean, he's not a uniformly bad guy in any sense of the word. I mean, he presided over the largest growth period in Madagascar's history. It was you know, one of the fastest growing economies in the world while he was in charge. Now, he did that partly by being corrupt because the things that were good for his yogurt business were also good for growth uh, elsewhere because he was building roads and so on. But the story of that sort of change in oneself from this very sort of, you know, humble beginnings to someone who was literally naming the national airplane Air Force Two and then leasing it to himself uh, before starting to, you know, engage in all sorts of corrupt deals. That to me is one of the central questions of this hypothesis that power corrupts. And I use it as one branch of, of introducing this concept that maybe people start off good and then power forces them to either make compromises because of the system or it changes their psychology in a way where they get too big for their britches and they start to, you know, really abuse their authority. But I think that, you know, actually one of the main conclusions I come to in the book is that while that's true and that dynamic probably is, you know, a, an explanation for Ravalo Manana himself, there's a lot of other different things that are happening with power and, and the self-selection of people, rotten people into power is one of the more prominent, I think, conclusions that I draw in, in the rest of the research. Mm -hmm. I sort of sorted out three different lines of argument in your book. One of them was, does power corrupt? One of them was, do the kinds of people attracted to power become corrupt? Is there a self-selection involved? And then the third one was, are we as human beings attracted to corrupt bad people? I mean, is there something in our brains that, that finds that, that appealing? Um, but maybe we could s start with your kind of your exploration to the first question, which was, is there something about power that corrupts? Because as you said, you looked at some psychological, neurological explanations. How do people's brains change? You know, what does it do to you to be the alpha male or the CEO of the company or the prime minister of the country? Um, what did you conclude about that? Is there some physical change that, that we undergo? Is there some moral change? Is there something that happens to people who are in power? Yeah, so I think there's a couple things that manifest as us saying power corrupts and it actually being true. Uh, one of them is that power does increase risk-taking. It increases selfish behavior. There's all sorts of psychological studies that I go through in the book that show how powerful people behave differently than less powerful people. So there is something that actually changes in your brain chemistry. It also causes you to age faster. Uh, if you're at a position of power that's much more stressful than other positions in the hierarchy, we have lots of evidence, both from CEOs and from primates, that it's a highly, highly stressful positions of power uh, cause more rapid biological aging. And there's some really clever techniques where they can actually show it beyond just sort of the gray hairs and things like that. But I also well, we, think we, we all know that our, our presidents in the United States always eventually end up with gray hair, whatever, however they started. Yeah. And it's not it's not just sort of a folktale, right? There's actually something happening to these people on a biological level. And, and the the experts I interviewed who look at baboons find biological markers of the alpha male aging at a much more rapid rate, which interestingly uh, leads to the conclusion, actually, that beta males in that hierarchy are, are often best off because they get the access to the resources and the spoils, but they don't have the biological stress that ends up killing them faster, which has some potentially imp interesting implications for human society. 
But I also think there's other things that are happening that make power appear to corrupt people. So one of those is how systems operate, right? I, I make the point in the book that if you're thrust into an awful system, you might end up more likely to make awful choices. And so, you know, people who are unfortunate enough to be born into a system where the only path to being dominant in the hierarchy or being close to political power is by torturing people or being abusive, they're more likely to behave that way. So it looks like power has corrupted them. And perhaps it has, but it's for different reasons than just the straight up psychological metric. And then the final thing is I have a chapter that says why it appears that power corrupts. And I'll just, I've got a couple different aspects of that. But one of them that I wanted to, to talk about is just this idea that you could have someone who is corrupt to the core, who doesn't have any power to begin with. So they don't appear to be awful because they're not actually doing anything consequential. They get into power. They're awful to begin with. But as they're going through their time in office or their time in authority, they just get much better at being bad, right? They're just better at getting away with it. They're better at manipulating people. They're figuring out the sort of tricks of the trade. And so on 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 paper, they look worse. When in fact, what, what's happened is their impulses have just be, become more effective. And so I think there's a whole bunch of things that are happening all at once where that sort of, you know, that, that, that saying that power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, which people often trot out in, in normal conversation is actually far more complicated and interesting than it is at first glance. It's true, right? So the psychological data shows that it actually is true and it is corrupting and changing people's psychology. But there's a much more complex story happening under the surface. I really liked the part in your book about, you You mentioned it already, about Paul Bremer. And for those who don't remember, he was the man effectively put in charge of Iraq after the U.S. invasion and after the fall of Saddam or the disappearance of Saddam. And essentially, he inherited a dictatorship. He inherited a country that was run by bad rules. And therefore, he found himself having to make one or two decisions of a kind he would never have made if he was running, I don't know, the state of Florida, um, including, for example, there was a newspaper um, that was be that was putting out material calling for violent acts of terror against Americans. And so he shut it down. And, you know, in, a, in the United States, you wouldn't shut down a newspaper, um, even if it was doing things, saying things that, that you didn't like. But in the context of Iraq and in the context of the U.S. occupation and the U.S. number of Americans who were there, you know, he couldn't allow there to be, you know, agitation for people to be able to murder Americans. Um, and of course, this is a really important conundrum, really important, because it's pretty central to the politics of what happens when countries transition from having been dictatorships to becoming democracies, which is something I've studied an enormous amount. Um, I wrote about it myself when I was living in Eastern Europe in the 19, late 1980s and early 1990s. And the, the question of how to change the rules, how to how to alter the rules of the society so that they are better rules and how to change the mentality of people is very fundamental. And people talk about it using all kinds of fancy language, like, you know, it's about judicial reform or, you know, transitional justice. Or, you know, but really, it's it's about what you describe. You know, you've inherited a bad system. People are accustomed to living and working within that system, the system of justice, the economic system, and so on. So how do you make that change? And this is, of course, deeply connected to what you talk about at the end of the book, which is how we could change the way that we select people and remind people of the limits of their power. But maybe you could talk a little bit about Paul Bremer and why you went skiing with him and <laughs> what, what he thinks now about his experience as an American running post-Saddam Iraq. 
Yeah, I mean, I I found him to be a deeply fascinating character. And he's one of these guys where a lot of Americans sort of have this very, very two-dimensional view of him as this cookie-cutter villain from their time, you know, the time that the U.S. invaded Iraq. And they basically know one thing about him, which was he was in charge of this process and the process went terribly wrong. So I went out to sort of scratch under the surface a little bit more, but also because I thought he was an interesting case study where he's a pure example in a way of a person operating in two different systems and behaving in wildly different ways, right? So he's ambassador to Norway. He's ambassador to Malawi. Uh, he deals with counterterrorism before 9-11. In all of those, he did exemplary work by basically everybody's accounting, right? He was a good ambassador. He warned basically about 9-11 before it happened when he was working on counterterrorism. And then he went off to Iraq and he didn't just inherit a bad system. He also inherited some bad decisions that had been made before his time there, which he's often blamed for disbanding the Iraqi army and uh, purging the Ba'ath Party, which he told me was something that he actually pushed back against. But, you know, he had to be the figurehead uh, for those policies. So what I wanted to understand was how how does he end up making these calculations and how should we think about them for people in power who are making awful decisions? And I think the point that he was making was everything came back to order at the beginning of his time, right? If you didn't have order and if the system devolved into civil war, sectarian war, then all of the ambitions about democracy and freedom and freedom of the press and newspapers being able to print were pointless because none of them would be protected in that system. So early on, he made this this calculation that I think, you know, is morally abhorrent to even talk about, which is shooting looters. But from his point of view, was the only way to sort of send a message that the U.S. military will not tolerate unrest in Iraq. And I think it gets right to the core of the complexity, right? Because there are plenty of Iraqis who were on the record speaking to journalists saying basically they think that he was right. And a lot of the Americans were saying this is terrible. And I think it shows that juxtaposition between our moral comp- compass and the, the, the sort of impossible decisions that you're forced to make on a routine basis when you're inheriting these awful systems. Now, I liked going out to have a ski lesson with him uh, because it shows the complexity of the individual. One of the things that I also try to convey in the book, and this has been something I've been grappling with for the last 10 years, is I've met a lot of awful people who have done some really horrible things. I mean, war criminals, people who have authorized torture, all sorts of things. And when I meet those people, there's a complexity to them that isn't as straightforward as you might expect. It's not to absolve them, right? It's just to say there's a human being here. And I think what what was interesting with Paul Bremer is you, you know, he's cracking jokes about how he instructs children in ski lessons. And he's got on his, you know, in his house, he has this, uh, you know, flag that's about his time in Iraq. And also this, this signed photo of him with President Bush saying, you know, keep, you know, great job right next to a hat that says best rookie for the first year ski instructor on the brim. And it's, it's this strange juxtaposition of this, this person who I only really knew from his press conferences and the disastrous un, un, unfolding of, of the situation in Iraq in 2003 and beyond. And I think that's an important message about power, that these are people, right? And they have good and bad, and they also are making decisions, not always because they're villains, but sometimes because they think it's the least bad option. We should still criticize them when they make those decisions, but we also have to recognize that sometimes people are trying their best, even if they look awful on paper. That leads actually to the second big theme of your book, which is what kinds of people are attracted to power. In other words... 
what kinds of people run for office, what kinds of people want to be CEO, what kind of people like that idea or want to be in charge of post-Saddam Iraq or, you know, are willing to take on that challenge. Is there something specific? Is there a certain kind of person who's attracted to that kind of status? Yeah, so I tried to tackle this question a few ways. I mean, one of them was I, I looked into research and I interviewed people who look at genetic explanations for that, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a theme that often makes people uncomfortable, but there has been studies that look at, is there a power-seeking gene, right? And, and what they found was they found something that they called a leadership gene, which if you sort of look at people, sequence their genomes and see who ends up in leadership positions, the gene that they identified actually accounted for about 30% of the variance, which is to say, it actually explained quite a lot. In a, in a, in a study of genetic outcomes, that's a very high number. The problem was, you know, there's a lot of reasons why that might be the case. It might not be because they thirsted for power. It might be they're just really affable people who are charismatic and good in job interviews and good at getting power and so on. So we're sort of back to square one. And I don't think we can draw any firm conclusions about whether there's a gene, so to speak, that causes some people to want power and some people to run away from it. But what I do think is that it makes intuitive sense that this is not a random distribution of people, right? Like when we look at a basketball team in high school, we don't expect those people to all be similar heights and we don't expect them to be broadly you know, representative of the population. We also don't expect there to be a lot of short people on the basketball team. There is a self-selection process into that just as there is a self-selection process into power. Certain people uh, you know, desire power for very different reasons. They might want it for the glory. They might want it for the money. They might, might want it because they're abusive. And so there's lots of different strands that cause this self-selection. But I do think that this story is underrepresented in our discussion of people in power. I think that we are always fixated on the indi individuals who are there and not the individuals who never really threw their hat in the ring. To use a different analogy, what I always say is, you know, sort of like the tip of the iceberg problem. You can see the tip of the iceberg. That's all the people in power. But our real problem is actually below the surface, just the same way that icebergs often cause damage below the surface. Because our real problem is that good people are disproportionately unlikely to seek power in the first place. And I've, I've, I've written about this more recently. I've got a piece coming out in the LA Times uh, this week which basically makes the point in the U.S. context, for example, that all these viral videos we see of school board members and local officials being screamed at by, frankly, you know, unhinged zealots who are giving them death threats based on following public health guidance is really going to compound the problem for us because there's not a whole lot of glory or money associated with the local school board. And when people make a risk-reward calculation, a lot of good people who just want to serve their communities are going to start saying – it's not worth it, right? Why, why should I have my children harassed and the death threats coming uh, when all I want to do is make my community a little better? So I think we're going to have a really big problem on our hands for the next generation of leaders because we have made power in many of its forms toxic to normal, decent people. Well, this has been something I've talked about for a long time. So I'm married to a politician and, and I even saw this evolve over the last couple of decades. The, you know, the rise of 24-hour effective surveillance of people who are in the spotlight, you know, the the way in which the internet can capture some accidental remark you make or some facial expression and turn it into almost the opposite of what was meant. These kind of fake gotcha moments, you know, the way in which it's considered okay to harass people. I mean, and, you know, of all kinds, you know, in their homes and this, you know, and this is now moved from 
being something that people do to really very famous celebrities to, as you say, that's something in America, you know, if you're on a local school board and you've announced that children have to wear face masks, you know, you can have you can have people standing outside your house shouting at you and throwing things at you. And so and that's a you know, and, and you're right. It means that ordinary, normal people who might be rather good at running a school board uh, might not run it. I mean, it's one of the it seems to me it's one of the biggest obstacles now to 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 democracy. I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the ways in which democracy is breaking down because we've made the process of becoming an elected Democrat at all levels so unpleasant. There was a very good podcast, actually, that Malcolm Gladwell did I, uh, some months ago, maybe it was a couple of years ago, where he looked at other ways of selecting people, including randomly, you know, whereby you could have a sort of pool of people who are roughly qualified to be whatever on the school board or mayor of the local town. And then rather than making them go through an election campaign, which, as you, you know, attracts a certain kind of person and a certain, you know, you have to be able to stand a certain amount of pressure. What if you pick names out of a hat? You know, if there was out of 50 people, you picked one and that person got to be mayor for the year. Would that solve some of these problems? Is that a, is that an interesting resolution? Yeah, I, I've heard that podcast. I think it's I think it's a really interesting proposal. But in, in one part of the book, so the, the political science term for this is sortition. And it's got, you know, it's got roots back in uh, ancient Greece where they did this for sort of public service. And they had this machine that uh, s- selected people called the claritarium. Right. And, you know, one of the things that I say is I don't think that's actually the solution in terms of putting the actual people in charge. And the reason for that is because there is specialist knowledge associated with being a politician that I think is important. I think that politicians can become particularly effective over the span of their careers in ways that ordinary people who have a 12-month stint in power may not. But I do think that sortition is crucial and should be rapidly and dramatically expanded as a form of oversight. So one of the things that I think should happen, for example, in business is I think that boards should have shadow boards, which is basically a randomly selected pool of people from the company who anytime there's a major decision that's being made has to produce its own report of what they think they would do. I think those people who are divorced from the sort of quarterly profit rat race might actually have some insights that are different from the board itself. And even if the board doesn't follow the advice of the shadow board in this context, they would still have to sort of explain why they didn't. And you could you could adopt this for politics too, right? So I think in the United States, for example, you could have this anywhere in Europe or anywhere that, that's a, a reasonably functional democracy. You have a, a sort of citizen assembly that is, say, 500, 1,000 randomly selected people, sort of like for jury duty, and they're paid for a year. And let's say we ask them 10 questions. We, we, we sort of decide on the 10 big issues confronting the country this year. What should we do? So should we mandate masks in a pandemic, right? How should we deal with climate change? Should we approach net zero? They would have non-binding uh, reports that they would basically produce. And they would say, here's what we think, you know, ordinary people who have been given access to all the science, all the experts, et cetera. Here's what we think you should do. Again, the politicians wouldn't be bound to follow this. But they would at least have to explain when they did diverge and it would provide some level of accountability. And I think that is, is an important step is that we do have to recognize the self-selection problem is corrosive to our politics. And as you, you know, as someone married to a, a well-known politician, this is something where it's unsustainable. 
it's also bled into other aspects of of power in our societies, not just uh, politicians, etc. Also, journalists. I mean, I, I I haven't talked to you about this before, but I imagine that you get death threats. I mean, I've gotten death threats. It's something that has become a normal part of being involved in public discourse in so many countries around the world, and that is so toxic to finding and and getting the best people in charge because. Most people who don't desire power, if you, if you desire power, it's enough to offset it, right? So if you want power, you say, well, I'll deal with the death threats because I'll be powerful at least. I'll get the fame, the glory, the money. If you don't want power, you just want to make a difference, that's not as big of a desire or a demand on your sort of psychology as I don't want my children to be exposed to death threats and violence and harassment and so on. So, you know, it's just compounding an already difficult problem. And I think that's where sortition can come in to sort of balance it out without radically replacing the idea that that politicians should not exist anymore in the way that we consider them. Yes. Um, I mean, I, ha- I, I, I have had death threats. I mean, but it's true that one now lives in this kind of soup where there's so much of it around one just ignores it. I think one of the things that's always been striking to me is when I, when I see people who hit that stuff for the first time, whether because they're journalists or because they've got some public opinion or public role that they've never had before. And they're very often very shocked by it. And the sad thing is people have to learn to live with it, whether it's kind of university presidents or editors of newspapers or whoever it is that you are. You're right. That's that's become normal. And having some counter to that would be useful. But there's a third issue that is really important in your book and that you also attack from different angles, which is this question of whether we are attracted to corrupt people or bad people? Or is there something, and this I thought about clearly in the context of Donald Trump, whom you've also written so much about and written columns about and so on, you know, is there something about the fact that he is cruel, that he breaks rules? You know, he's, I mean, it's not just, I mean, politically incorrect is such a weak way of describing it. I mean, he's literally, you know, he says things that are openly racist and vulgar. Is that somehow attractive to people? Maybe this is you know, in another matter for your primate scientists, um, is there something about our sort of chimpanzee brains that makes some of us attracted at least some of the time to people who are clearly bad and evil, even according to the rules of our society? Yeah, I mean, I, I found this question like deeply immersive while I was researching it because there's so many different threads that try to explain why we are drawn to the wrong leaders. So the first thing to say is that we don't have to be uh, because we actually have a sophisticated social environment in ways that primates may not, which is to say that being the biggest and strongest person is no longer you know, necessary to be the most powerful person. We have ways that we can you know, structure society, whereas primates, for the most part, uh, the big and strong dominate. But what people like Donald Trump do very effectively is they have exploited something called an evolutionary mismatch. This is where I talk to a lot of evolutionary psychologists for the book. And, and basically what they say is, look, our, our species has evolved over hundreds of thousands of years, but our brain is basically the same as it was during the Stone Age. And so, you know, our, our modern day skulls house a Stone Age mind is how they put it. And what they mean by that is that our brains haven't really adapted evolutionarily to the fact that we live radically different lives to our Stone Age and, and, and sort of, you know, our ancestry, basically. 
And that means that there's a template, a series of templates in our brains for what power is and what leaders look like that has serious biases. And one of the most important findings, I think, is that when you give people an option of, you know, picking some sort of individual, and they do this with computer simulations, right? So they sort of, there's no other information given. They say, who do you want to pick as your leader? And then they give you a prompt in the second scenario where it talks about some sort of crisis, right? There's an impending war or a famine or something like that. In those scenarios, people are much more drawn to big, strong men. You know, I don't know why. I mean, it's a very depressing finding, but it's it's just every time they run this study, the same thing happens, which is why that term strongman, I think, is not a misnomer. I think it's actually exactly what it's supposed to be, is that they're trying to present themselves as this person who is simultaneously manufacturing a crisis and also providing the solution to it in a way that jives very, very well with these uh, Stone Age biases in, in our minds. And I think acknowledging that based on the science and the data is the first step to fixing it. But I, I sort of also wanted to go further than that because there's something deeply wrong with the way that we evaluate leaders to begin with, even outside of strong men and these sort of crisis moments, which is one of the things that I opened the book with is this study that, you know, it was published in a top scientific journal. It's been vetted. It's very robust where they show children uh, the faces of two different individuals and they say, who do you want to be in charge of your ship? You know, it's an imaginary boat that they're supposed to have picking the captain of and they pick. And what they don't know is that the faces are actually the two faces of the winner and the runner up in a French parliamentary election. And the children with astonishing accuracy uh, pick the winner. And so that sort of raises this question of like, are campaigns really just this massive multi-billion dollar thing where people just decide based on face? I mean, if, if that's that's a possible explanation. And so we have lots of cognitive biases when it comes to leadership. And these, of course, spill over into boardrooms, into you know managers and mid-level you know, companies and so on. And we don't even think about it. And so my, my point is not to say that this is definitive proof that everything's broken. It's just to say we need to reflect a lot more on how we choose leaders and why people are more or less appealing to us. And it's not always based on policy or competence. Mm -hmm. In the final part of your book, you talk about you have sort of three or four chapters where you talk about how we might go about altering these primitive you know, okay, we have these primitive attractions to strong people, and that makes us susceptible to the strong men who create the chaos that makes us want to have strong men, for, I mean, for example. And that's we've seen lots of examples of that around the world in the last few years. Um, and we have this, you know, primitive tendency to choose people who look a certain way over people who look another certain way. Um, but you argue in the latter part of the book that there are ways in which we could change the rules. First of all, change the rules so as to attract better people to politics, more incorruptible people to politics. And second of all, to change the rules so that the rest of us make better choices. It's actually quite an ambitious um, chunk of writing. So maybe we could parse it a little bit and, and go through just a few of the ideas. One of them you write about um, reminded me also of another thing from ancient history. I mean, you talk about Robin Butler, who you interview, who was a kind of 
you know, advisor to many prime ministers. Well, maybe you tell the story. One of one of the first things he had to do when when they came into office was present them with a very bad choice that would immediately produce the, you know, a collapse of the euphoria that they had from having won the election. Of course, this reminded me of the story that when Roman Caesars were driving their chariots through the massive screaming crowds, somebody was supposed to stand behind them and keep whispering in their ear, don't forget you're only human. So why don't you tell the, the, the Robin Butler story and, you know, let's think about whether there are other ways in which one could make that work more more broadly. Yeah, I, I, I think there's it's, it's related to this quirk of British politics called the letters of last resort, which many people aren't aware of. But when the prime minister takes office, one of the first things they have to do is fill out these four handwritten letters with no real rules attached to them that provide instructions to each of the captains of the nuclear submarines, the Trident uh, deterrence system that the UK uses to sort of deter nuclear attacks on, on Britain. And there's, as I say, there's not really any rules. They can say they should retaliate. They can say that they should just do nothing. They can write whatever they want to. Right, right. To be clear, this is in a circumstance in which London has been wiped out. Correct. Sorry, and I should have said be, that. So right. yeah, yeah. L- London has been attacked by a nuclear weapon. The British government has ceased to exist. And the British prime minister from beyond the grave is providing these instructions to the submarine captain right. for what to do. Not knowing who's attacked, not knowing how the attack happened, et cetera. Just here's the general instructions of what to do. And on those instructions, you know, if they say retaliate, the, the captain is supposed to basically launch the, the nuclear weapon, uh, which could you know, lead to World War III or the annihilation of our species. So Robin Butler, as the, the, the private secretary to the prime minister, would hand them these four letters, basically, and say, here's what you have to do. And before the modern era, we didn't know about this, right? This was a secret. So the prime minister has just finished their election campaign. They have no knowledge of this system, potentially. And then Robin Butler sort of wipes the smile off their face and says, here's the first thing you have to do. You have to think about if you've been, if not just your, your government has been eliminated, but like basically all of London, what are you going to do in that situation? And it impresses upon the prime minister the sort of importance of their their role. The the weight of responsibility is the way that I put it. So I called up Tony Blair on Zoom and asked him about this. And it was interesting because he's sort of the exception that proves the, the rule in a way. He said he actually wasn't that affected by this because he took power in a time where the risk of nuclear war was so minuscule that he didn't think that the letters would ever be uh, opened and that his instructions would never matter. But I think that the the underlying point here, which is where psychology comes in, is that the weight of responsibility actually does cause people to behave differently towards those affected by their decisions. And the more that people become, you know, emotionless abstractions, the easier it is to abuse them. We've seen this throughout history of dehumanization as a precursor to mass violence, right? I mean, where basically the idea is you can convince lots of ordinary people to do atrocious things as long as you convince them that the victims of their abuse are not fully human in some way. Now, if you take that on a smaller scale, any sort of emotional distance or psychological distance between the abuser who's in a position of power and the person being abused becomes easier, the less emotionally rich their view of that person has become. And so, you know, one of the things that I've, I've written about recently is how the potential for this to exist on Zoom, right? I mean, it's it's something where businesses, for example, are now like Uber, for example, uh, fired 3,500 employees uh, over a Zoom call, basically early in the pandemic or over a phone call early in the pandemic. 
And we also have corporate downsizing consultants who basically exist to avoid the emotional strain being put on someone in power when they have to give somebody the axe and the pink slip. And so I think we have to think about how our society has functioned in a way and transformed in a way that makes it so much easier to view people as disposable. Uh, and, I, and I think that's going to have consequences for those in power in ways that might not even be conscious, but will end up leading uh, to more abuses of authority. Yes, you talk a lot about dehumanization, which is something I've written about also. I mean, the, I wrote a book about the Ukrainian famine, which was essentially made possible by a whole extended campaign against 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 the peasantry in general, but particularly against wealthier peasants that said they were you know, you know, inhuman, they were parasites, they were stopping the progress of society, they needed to be eliminated in order for us all to move on. And that was a famine that was caused by people's food being removed. So of course, you can take the food from somebody who is inhuman and who's, who's stopping our progress and preventing us all from moving forward and so on. Um, and we see similar campaigns like, like that happen every day. But what's the mechanism by which we remind people in power of their membership, first of all, of their own membership in the human race, but second of all, that the decisions they're making affect ordinary people and affect lives. Uh, you know, is there is there something you, we could insert into the political system or insert into the into the way we govern? Yeah, this is this is a it's a great question. It's one I grappled with when I started reading this research because when you read this research that shows this psychological effect in addition to the sort of dehumanization that you've talked about in your work, your your immediate impulse is well, we just need to make sure that everybody is really close to the people who are are, are you know being affected by their decisions and that, you know, the person isn't an abstraction because it's harder to dehumanize or to abuse someone who is, you know, this rich person in front of you. The way I put it in the book is, you know, going after migrants is much easier for people uh, when they don't have an individual who's part of that community. So if you have somebody named Jose on your company softball team, who's a first generation migrant, you might actually moderate your views towards migrants, the group, if you have an individual uh, who you know and like. But the problem is that you can't actually do that practically, right? So this is where I sort of the pendulum swung back in my thinking where I was like, how would this actually work? Is a CEO going to get to know every employee in this massive company? It's impossible. And then there's also this aspect that some level in some professions of not necessarily dehumanization, but psychological distance is helpful. I mean, imagine if a surgeon couldn't operate on an individual because they viewed them as completely human and they were thinking about them as somebody's grandma as they had to carve them open. So there are coping mechanisms in some positions of power that actually use this mild form of dehumanization as a benefit to save the person's life or to, or to help them. So I think it's a, a classic, you know, the social science way of phrasing this is it's a Goldilocks problem. It's basically we need some, but not too much. We need a little, but not too much. So you need to make sure that CEOs have to interact with frontline workers. They don't have to know everybody, but they need to understand what's happening with their employees. Politicians need to be on front lines. They can't just be in a Westminster or a Washington bubble, and they can't just be with people who agree with them, which is what's happening much more now, right? You have politicians fly home for a rally, or they have a town hall where they screen people, and they're never exposed to alternative points of view, or they discount them. And it's also important to have systems where the views of people unlike you actually matter. So in the U.S. context, one of the things that I've talked about in other forms of my work is how we have created not just polarization, but also things like gerrymandering, where the only way to get elected is to make sure that people exactly like you vote for you, because there's nobody who's going to, there's not enough people from the other side. So you just systematically discount them. You don't care about them at all. And I think that the point I'm making in the book isn't that there's an easy fix for all these things. It's that 
We haven't tried to fix any of these things. We haven't even acknowledged that they're serious problems. There are a lot of creative ways that we could create more psychological distance for people in power. To my knowledge, none have been seriously tried at, an, at a national scale anywhere in the world. And so, you know, I think we need to sort of take a step back and think this is a serious problem that's inherent to power. Now, what, what do we do to fix it? And the same is true for pretty much every system, right? So I say in the book that we should take as granted that bad people will disproportionately be drawn to seek power, be disproportionately good at getting power, and be disproportionately good at staying in power. Let's take that as granted, and now let's redesign the systems assuming that that's the case. And I don't think that's happened right now. You talk a lot about watchdogs, you know, mechanisms that can go inside the system that will prevent corruption or, or, you know, the only problem I had with that is, I mean, the U.S. system actually has a lot of watchdogs in various forms. We have inspectors general, we have laws on nepotism, we have all kinds of corruption laws that have been there for a long time. Um, both laws and practices. And yet one of the things we learned in the last several years was how easy it turned out some of them were to break. You know, so you can have watchdogs, you can have systems set up designed to deter people and prevent the abuse of power. Um, and then you can have somebody come into office and say, right, I'm not paying attention to any of this. And as we saw in the US, although there was a lot of horror and anger at that among a part of the population, another part of the population didn't care. Yeah. So this is, this is why one of the things I, I have these 10 lessons in the book that are ideas for how we can sort of make the systems better and people behave better in power. And one of the things I say, I think reasonably clearly in this section is that they all sort of have to work together because <laughs> they, they, none, none of them are silver bullet, right? And you're completely right about this. We have lots of watchdogs in the U.S. and a certain segment of the population just completely ignores them or actually views the watchdog as the problem and says we should purge the watchdogs. So I think it's different solutions for different situations. In some places where there's lots of corruption, it's just not public knowledge. And in those places, the watchdogs are going to play a bigger role. In the places where we have the watchdogs and they're being discounted, it builds on that other point I just made about things like gerrymandering and polarization. Because if you can systematically discount a significant chunk of your voter base or your citizenry, then you don't have to care if they think you're corrupt as long as your people, your supporters, think you're on their side. And, and I think this is also something that speaks to the onus being put on individuals. I mean, this is a much bigger question that I don't have a good answer to, unfortunately, of how do we get people to care about corruption? I, I, and that's something I know you've worked on. And a lot of people are thinking about this question. But there's, there's a real problem we have in modern society that accountability has disappeared for so many people. And, and shame has too. So the combination where, you know, in the past – the elites used to hold each other accountable, so they would sort of force resignations. They would say, "You just you can't be part of our party anymore. You're you're you know you're behaving in an unacceptable way. You have to get out." That's gone. The shame is gone. So the people aren't actually taking themselves out of positions of power, and now their voters don't even care. Uh, it, it's a huge question. I wish I had a, a pithy, effective answer, but I think it's something that you're right to point out is 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 a crucial question in the 21st century. Because corruption unifies so many problems around power everywhere in the world. And at the end of the day, if people don't even care about it, we are lost in a way that's very, very difficult to fix. It's one of the things I'm, I've written about recently, and I'd love to hear your take on it, is, is exactly this question of why there hasn't been a successful political movement outside of Russia, actually, 
that has focused on the problems of kleptocracy. I mean, it's you know, it's very striking in London, you know, where so much of central London is now owned by foreign dictators or plutocrats via secret shell companies so that this whole city's real estate market is distorted. And yet, you know, there's no uprising in London against this, particularly by people who can't afford to live there anymore. Um, the only place where there's been a really successful anti-corruption movement is actually in Russia. This is what was led by Alexei Navalny. And this was a combination of him making clever videos about corruption, him himself being an appealing kind of everyman character, and you know, and he, and he and him staying away from ideology and really just focusing on that. And he gets you know tens of millions of clicks on these videos that he creates about about Putin's corruption. But I don't see that anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, my, my take on this, and, and I, I think your work on this is is super important because you're you're drawing attention to something that does cut across international boundaries and could actually unify this. This could be the new ideology of Western politics, right? The anti-corruption agenda, I think, could be a really important unifying agenda for liberals in the sense of people who believe in democracy, freedom and, and transparency and so on. I think the two reasons it hasn't happened. One is that a lot of politicians are in a situation where they're worried about the boomerang effect, which is to say, you know, when things like the Panama Papers come out, people who are in, you know, embedded in these systems end up getting embarrassed. And so there's a fair number of people who are worried that the more that people dig, the more that they're going to see a donor base or uh, their own tax haven involvement or their own sort of shady practices come to light, which probably stops some of it. And the second reason I think is more banal. I think that the politicians haven't figured out it's a winning message. And I think there are political movements that happen in waves, like populism happened in a wave where politicians figured out this actually moved voters. I think there needs to be one high profile Western politician who makes a lot of traction on this front and it will spread. And I think it's it's such an ingenious political argument because you're not, you know, the, the argument in the US, for example, right now about raising taxes to pay for Biden's agenda, you don't necessarily need to just raise taxes, you need to close loopholes and you need to tackle tax fraud. Now, that's a winning message on two fronts. It's sticking it to people who are extremely rich at a time when a lot of people are struggling, but it's doing it in a way that isn't punitive. It's just saying you have to follow the same rules as the rest of us. And, and I think that combined with what you talk about in London, where you know property prices are, are just prohibitive for, for most working class people. I think is a seriously winning message, especially coming out of the pandemic, right? Where you sort of think that there's a, a two-tiered system where nurses are, you know, struggling to get a pay rise after enduring some awful work and doing some really important things. And then they can't afford to live near their hospital because the property prices are all over a million pounds. So I think it's basically partly self-interest and partly just stupidity that nobody has picked up on this and realized it's a seriously smart political message. Well, hopefully they will soon after reading your book. So thank you, Brian. Brian Class's book is Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. It's out in the U.S. this month from Simon & Schuster. Uh, you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I'm Ann Applebaum. Thank you very much for listening. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared, 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.